listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. And now would you rise for the reading of Scripture? I'll be reading today from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, that was a nice response. Good work. Um, Couldn't hear anybody on the live stream, though. And just wanted to let you know, if you are watching from home, we're going to take communion here in about 25 minutes or so, so go ahead and get the stuff ready for that. Those of you in the room, you have nothing to worry about. I've got two up here. We'll multiply them and make sure that's enough for all of us. Uh, If you've been tracking along with us the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been in the book of Matthew. Actually, we've been in Matthew for a while, uh, but for specifically the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at chapters 11 and 12, and we'll head into 13 a little bit next week. And as we've been going through this particular section of Matthew, and in the way Matthew kind of writes the whole big story of of Jesus' life, we're starting to see opposition pushback against Jesus, and it's intensifying. Every week, it seems like it's just a little bit stronger, a little bit more strident. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time in chapter 10 a month or two ago, but chapter 10, we have Jesus teaching his followers, saying, I'm going to send you guys out, and because you follow me and you are trying to live your lives with me as your king, with this kingdom that I'm bringing, he says, because you're living your lives like this, if you follow me, you're going to face Opposition, rejection. It's not always going to go well for you. He takes one chapter to teach him that and then two chapters to kind of show what that looks like in real life. Uh, Chapter 10 was about you're going to face rejection, 11 and 12. Look, here it is. Opposition and rejection. We've gone in these couple of chapters, 11 and 12, from John the Baptist wondering if Jesus is really the one, the one who is the king, 
from there to the religious leaders and the authorities questioning Jesus' understanding of and application of the Old Testament scriptures to their lives. Uh, Then we watched them as they became outright and blatantly angry at Jesus because of his claim to be greater than their traditions, greater than their interpretations, greater than their own authority. The opposition continues to intensify, and in today's passage, it reaches a fever pitch. See, what Matthew is doing here is stacking these stories of opposition on top of each other to, to get us to this point in chapter 12 where we realize it's time to make a decision. The, the lines have been drawn, and it's time to decide Whose side of the line are you on? Are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Now, Matthew's been really specific. He's shown us how Jesus' power is undeniable. His teaching is revolutionary. And he thinks he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one who is specially chosen by God and sent by God and empowered by God's spirit. And when someone makes a claim that big, it can't be ignored You can't just be like, oh, well, whatever, just kind of let them go. See, you can do that when it's crackpots in the wilderness, which there were plenty of. You can do that when it's a crackpot in the wilderness who gets a few disaffected followers to join him, and then they basically do nothing until the whole thing just kind of falls apart. But Jesus isn't like that. See, he has, while claiming to be a Messiah, he has authenticated his claim so strongly with all these miracles and the healings and his teaching. He's claiming he's doing it with God's blessing and with the power of God's spirit. He's authenticated it so strongly that he cannot be ignored. And the response of the crowds pushes the leaders to say, we have got to come up with another way to explain all of this that's happening. So in this passage, what we're studying today, which is really just the kind of the core of a a longer section from verse 14 all the way to the the end of the chapter, in this section, in just 22 through 32, we get the real core of the question, which is, who is this Jesus? Who really is this guy? Where does his power come from? And beyond the fact that Jesus is the one, it becomes clear in this passage that Jesus is the one who forces a decision. Jesus is the one who forces a decision. At this point, you have to decide which side of the line are you on. They were filled with questions, and we might be as well. Is he the one? Could he be the one? There's no way he's the one, right? But by the time we get to these verses, Jesus forces us to make a decision. So, if you don't want to make a decision, now's the time to leave. No, I mean that, I mean that honestly, because Jesus is saying, we're going to get to this point where he says, hey, neutrality isn't really an option. At some point, neutrality becomes opposition. At some point, choosing not to choose becomes a choice to choose not. So let's jump in. Jesus is the one who forces a decision. Let's watch how that happens here in chapter 12. We're going to jump right into the beginning of this part of the story in verse 22. You may have noticed when this was read, this is probably the shortest miracle story in the Bible. One verse, 
Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. Shortened to the point, none of the character development, none of the descriptions, none of the pathos that, ca- that came with the miracle stories in chapters 8 and chapter 9 uh, of Jesus you know, putting his hands on people to heal them or casting out a demon, none of that. It, it, because I think that the brevity of this miracle story, the shortness of the story is a clue that the miracle's not really the point. The miracle isn't the point. It's everything that happens around it that's the point. The point is that the miracle forces a decision. In fact, uh, like I said a moment ago, verse 14 all the way through the end of the chapter is really one long story with that one thematic idea woven through it all. What will you decide about Jesus? Who do you think this guy is? In verse 14, that's the end of the passage we studied last week. We saw the Pharisees shamed by Jesus, furious at his claim to have higher authority than them, his claim to be God. We saw them withdraw and conspire together how they were going to get rid of this guy, or at least how are we going to keep these claims from being heard, from being heeded. Now, Matthew gives us just a tiny little uh, digression between verse 14 and where we pick up kind of the story again in verse 22 and in verse 15, showing us that Jesus kind of pulls back from being in the public eye and yet continues to perform hearing, uh, healing miracles for all those who have come out to him. And then Matthew ties all of this, this in with a passage from Isaiah 42, Isaiah, uh, that great Old Testament prophet where that big section from like 40 to 55 or so is all about the servant. The servant who is going to come and rescue Israel. And right there from the beginning of it in chapter 42, Matthew says, look, everything that Jesus was doing and healing and releasing people from Satan's oppression was to, be, was to fulfill these verses from 42 where God says about this servant, Look at this guy I've chosen. He's my beloved. I'm well pleased with him. And says, I will put my spirit upon him. Now, notice that word spirit. It's important because this whole section of which 22 through 32 is kind of the core of it. This whole section is, uh, it's all contingent on like, okay, by what spirit, by what power is Jesus performing these miracles? Who is really empowering him? Matthew starts this section with this reminder from Isaiah that Jesus' miraculous healings are done with God's approval through the power of God's spirit. And then the Pharisees come along and accuse Jesus of performing his miracles with the approval of Satan through the power of Satan. Not the same spirit, okay? Just want to make sure we're clear on that. Not the same spirit. Let's pick it up again in verse 22. So, shortest miracle story in the Bible. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, could this, can this be the son of David? Now, I wish I had time to dig into like everything that's buried in verse 22. There, there is so much uh, in here that could be said about demons and about the nature of evil in the world and why some translations have this as demon possession and others say demon 
oppression and the, the unique way that this guy's, the problems with this guy are, are healed by Jesus, which isn't really like any other time that he heals somebody, and the connection with later terms like Beelzebub and Satan or the accuser and all of that, but I don't have time. So if you want to hear all that, text in to the Faith Church number, which is up there, 855-581-0388, and, and tell us, cover it in Cut for Time. Uh, if you're not aware, Cut for Time is like an extra podcast episode that comes out in the middle of the week where I, the, whoever just preached sits down with our communications director and she asks us questions like, what did you not have to, you know, what did you not have time for? You had to cut it because it was too much or it would have put us all to sleep or whatever. Like, what did you take out of the sermon? And so you can text in questions and we cover all that and you can get it in our podcast feed and whatever. Sorry, that whole explanation took too long and should have been cut for time. So... <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move back into the story, right? It, it, didn't, it doesn't take too long to get the gist of the miracle that Jesus performs, the healing, because again, it, it's not the point. But we move from verse 22 in the miracle into verse 23, the reaction and the accusation against Jesus. So verse 23, Matthew says, and all the people were amazed. And this is the strongest Greek word for amazement. Uh, more than any other time that he has healed somebody, at least this is the strongest reaction from the crowd, and they ask, can this be the son of David? Now, Greek has this fun way of uh, arranging the grammar so that when you ask a question, you're implying the answer that you want in the way you ask the question. We do that kind of more with um, inflection or by adding phrases to the end, like, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? Or this could not be the son of David, Right? And they're, they're asking the question more in that second way, where they're expecting the answer to be no. There's no way. Like, they're seeing what Jesus just did and saying, there's, there's no way this could really be the son of David, the Messiah, the one who's coming. Like, there's no way this could be the son of David, right? It's just not possible. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, capitalize on the moment of, of doubt to offer an alternative account, uh, a different narrative to explain what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is the one who is forcing them to make a decision, but they're making a bad one. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, heard of the miracle, heard of the response by the crowd, they said, well, it's only by Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, I mentioned earlier that it was difficult to ignore Jesus. Unlike all of the other messiahs that had come and gone, uh, Jesus seems to be authenticating, proving that he really has the power he says he has in a way that, that no one else has ever done before. And, and so the, the Pharisees are, are, are put up against a wall here. They can't really ignore Jesus. They can't ignore him. And I don't mean uh, just that Jesus is really persuasive and he's doing impressive things, so he's hard to ignore. Or that his, his marketing campaign is like so pervasive, there's billboards everywhere, so you can't ignore him. Uh, that's not what I mean. What I, what I mean is that you know, in a way that we don't intuitively understand today, no one at the time could ignore Jesus' claims. 
It's easier for us today because we tend to relegate questions about who Jesus is, who God is, to kind of a, a spiritual realm that is separated from every other part of life, right? You've got all the, the day-to-day stuff, and then you've got the, the spiritual stuff that you have to, uh, yeah, when you have time maybe or convenience, you can, you can think about those questions. Spiritual questions become easily ignorable. Because, uh, right, our culture today, you can easily pick and choose between a variety of spiritual options or choose to choose none of them. And there's very little sort of outside compulsion saying you you have to make a choice. But in Jesus' time, when someone claims to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming ruler of Israel, the king who is ushering in God's kingdom, the one who is the arbiter of God's will, when someone makes that claim, then he either is who he claims to be or he isn't. And if you're an Israelite, you have to have an opinion. You can't not have an opinion because to be an Israelite is to be a servant of the king that God appoints. And so if someone comes along and says, I'm that king, well, then you have to decide, like, do I believe him or not? Is he the king or is he not? It's completely tied up in your individual identity, your political identity, your whole community identity. If someone claims to be the king, you have to decide, do I think he's the king or not? See, for the people living at Jesus' time who are interacting with him face-to-face or reading these stories shortly after they were written, uh, to take Jesus at his word that he's the rightful king is not simply a spiritual decision. To take Jesus at his word that when he says, hey, I am the king, the one who has come to bring the kingdom of God, is not to make a spiritual decision, but to make a decision that has intense political and sociological, you know, familial community implications. Either way you go, there are consequences, radical consequences. At this time, You have basically two choices, either, well, three. You can run away and try not to decide, but it's what the crowds do. It's not what the Pharisees have the the, uh, capacity to do. You've, You've got basically two choices. Either... You align yourself with, G- with Jesus. You've heard about this guy, Jesus. You've heard what he's done. Maybe you've interacted with him individually. You've heard what he's claiming and what he's doing. And so you have a choice. Either you align yourself with him, and that means you necessarily stand in opposition to the political rulers of the day, the, one who say, the ones who say that the only Lord is Caesar. You can't both pledge allegiance to Jesus and pledge allegiance to the country you're part of. There's there's no spiritual political divide. It's all one thing. If you align yourself with Jesus, you're standing against the political authorities and you're standing against the religious authorities. The ones who are saying that, okay, sure, this guy's doing some cool stuff, but when the Messiah comes, he's not going to look like that. He's not going to, it's not going to be like that. It's it's someone else. It can't be him. So you choose to align yourself with Jesus and you're putting yourself up against your entire religious community and political social community. Or you align yourself against Jesus, against his compassion 
and his gentleness and the humility that you've experienced and heard about from others. You align yourself against his power to heal and forgive. And at least you don't risk political or social blowback. But you also might be missing the, the kingdom of God right in your midst. See, this is not an easy choice. And it's it's hard for us, I think, uh, us particular kind of American Westerners to, to grasp how difficult of a choice this really is. The closest that we can come, perhaps, I think, to, to seeing the difficulty in today's world is as we get to know the stories of our friends who have come to Jesus out of a background of, of faith in Islam or out of a Muslim cultural background. They're beautiful stories, stories we get to hear from our English classes, from uh, our missionaries, from the seminaries that we're, we're partnered with. But these are, are beautiful stories that are filled with intense familial and social and political and religious sacrifice. Because these are people who were going through life more or less fine until Jesus showed up. They're going through life pretty much okay, and then Jesus showed up, and, and having been confronted by the claims of Jesus and understanding who he is and feeling the, the, the kind of the Holy Spirit enlightening and illuminating your heart towards who Jesus is, then folks have to decide, who am I going to put myself up against? You don't get to just make the decision and be like, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, and it's kind of a spiritual thing, but it doesn't affect anything else. It affects everything, religious and familial and cultural and all of that. And our, our friends who have come to Christ out of a Muslim background have sacrificed incredibly because when it comes down to it, Jesus forces us to make a decision. So imagine the wrestling your soul would go through if that were your situation, that's the kind of inner anguish and compulsion that the crowds and the rulers and the authorities are feeling. We have to decide who we're for and who we're against. You have to decide. And there are only two choices. When it comes to Jesus, either he's doing what he's doing through the power of the Spirit of God, as he says, or his power comes from somewhere else. And so the Pharisees respond, right? The question is, by whose spirit is Jesus casting out these evil spirits? And their answer is, well, not by the spirit of God, but by the spirit of uh, the evil one. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, it's like, you guys know why he's so good at this, right? Because he's their boss. They have to listen to him. The only reason they're doing what he says is because he has, the, he has Satan's backing. He has the power of Beelzebul. That's a, another word for Satan. It's kind of backing him up. Now, you'll notice they don't, they don't deny the reality of Jesus' power. They're not trying to explain away the miracle or say, well, it didn't really happen or that guy was faking it the whole time or anything like that. They're like, okay, something definitely happened here. Um, the devil did it. This is your only other, it's your only other choice. Since the power is real, the only alternative is question the source. If Jesus isn't operating by the power of the Spirit of God, then it's by the power of the Spirit of someone else. Now, when Jesus responds, so again, we have the, the miracle, this very short miracle story that isn't really the point. The point is then the accusation and the response. When Jesus responds, he responds, I think, frankly, um, 
just a little more aggressively than we would normally expect of him. The gentle and humble and forgiving Jesus suddenly has some very hard words to say, words that are black and white, um, maybe a little more firm than we would, we would normally want. He comes across a little less forgiving than we would want him to be. Now, Matthew records it for us, and we don't have time to walk through every verse. So broadly, there's kind of three rapid-fire, quick-succession arguments for why their accusation against him is just on the face of it absurd and ridiculous. The first one is just, guys, think about this. Presumably, Satan, the accuser, puts you know, a united front against the work of God in the world and wouldn't undercut himself by casting out his own subordinates and making it impossible for them to do their work. So, like, think about this. Um, a house divided against itself isn't going to stand. If Satan casts out Satan, then he's dividing his kingdom. This is just plain uh, doesn't make sense. And second, you know, if Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, in other words, he's like, so if I free people from Satan's oppression by the power of Satan, that doesn't make sense. But even if that is what I'm doing, he's like, well, what about your followers who also participate in this kind of ministry of deliverance? Where are they getting their power from? Who are they casting out demons, like by whose authority? He says, if, if what you say about me, you say about them, they're going to have some words to say about you. They will, they'll be your judges. And then third, he says, how about alternate idea? Why don't we think about this? Verse 28, if it's, on the other hand, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, well then, and here's the hard truth, what's difficult for them to hear. He says, well, then it means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which doesn't just mean, well, the kingdom of God's here. It means the kingdom of God ambushed you from behind. You weren't even looking in the right direction. It came on you suddenly and unexpectedly. You of all people who should have been watching for God's kingdom to come, who should have been preparing to see God's work in the world. You're like experts in the Old Testament in all of these passages talking about how God is going to come back and set up his kingdom. You should have been ready for it. You're the most spiritually sensitive and religiously educated people in the country, and it surprised you from behind. You should have seen when the one who is gentle and humble and approachable, when he comes and he begins restoring sight to the blind and, and giving hearing back to the deaf and life to the dead, and he's, he's cleansing the lepers and preaching good news to the poor, how can that be anything but God pouring out his spirit on this one and empowering him to do all the things that the Old Testament said he would do? In other words, he says, look, here, let's, let's try an alternate set of facts here. Maybe what's going on is that the kingdom of God you say you serve is here and it surprised you because you were looking in the wrong direction. It showed up and you're missing it. Because, and he goes on, he's like, look, I am not, you know, undoing Satan from the inside or something like that. Or this isn't some double, double cross, triple cross thing going on here. He's like, look, uh, in, in verse, uh, verse 29, he's like, 
He uses this common imagery from Jewish thought about the end of the the world, what it would mean when the Messiah returns, that Satan is a strong man, like an oppressive ruler force, and somebody's going to come along and tie him up, bind him up, and then free everything that he's held in captivity. So Jesus says here in verse 29, you know, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's saying, I don't need Satan's permission to tie him up. It's like, I'm more, I have more than enough power to tie up the strong man and release everything he has held and everyone he has held captive. The accusation that the Pharisees are making is utterly absurd, which is the, the scariest part of the whole passage. Because when the alternatives are absurdity, or a truth that you desperately do not want to be true? What's the natural human response? Absurdity. We would rather go for the absurd than for the truth that we do not want to be true. These guys are clearly in a desperate situation. And not just politically or religiously, but morally and spiritually. They are so desperate to explain away what Jesus is doing that they would rather believe that the clear work of the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan than believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And because they've willfully chosen to misattribute the work of God— and are attributing it instead to the evil one, Jesus has strong words, words that stand out so strongly because they seem to be so much, I mean, they are so much harsher than almost anything else we read of him ever saying. But his strong words serve a point. You have to take a position on Jesus. Neutrality is not an option. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And he goes on to say, look, you can say whatever you want about Jesus. He's saying about himself, you can say whatever you want about me and still realize you were wrong and come to a point of repentance and find forgiveness. Even Peter, right, who 10 chapters later, 15 chapters later, uh, is overcome by fear and is like, "I I never knew this guy. Speaks against Jesus and yet Peter is forgiven and brought back in, welcomed back in. But that's different from what he calls blaspheming the Spirit of God. When you've blasphemed the Spirit of God, you've crossed the line. Because you're willfully misattributing the clear work of God, and that indicates a deliberate refusal to acknowledge God's power, a completely perverted and upside-down view of the way the world really is. You're looking at good and calling it evil. You're saying, these people are being free from Satan. The only explanation is that must be Satan's work. This is the most egregious blasphemy possible, the knowing and deliberate rejection of what you know to be true. And so Jesus is like, well, what else does that indicate but a hardening of the heart against God that, because it's deliberate, is essentially irreversible? But Jesus is the one, you may remember from previous sermons, he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins and he's telling them clearly. 
If you see that his ministry is empowered by the Spirit of God, that he's been anointed by God, that he's working at God's direction as the Messiah of Israel, and still for whatever reason, uh, jealousy or envy or spite, or you just don't like that the guy is nicer and smarter than you are, whatever reason, you look at his work and say, that's not the Spirit of God, that's got to be the Spirit of the evil one. It's like there's no coming back from that. There's no coming back from that. You've solidified your position in opposition to God. And if you persist in that position, there's no forgiveness, either in this age or in the age to come. Those, those, are, hev- those are heavy words. Heavy words. True words. Necessary words. Because Jesus is the one who forces a decision. Now, the story goes on. It's beyond the scope of what we have time to cover this morning, but the story goes on as the crowds react, the the Pharisees react, even Jesus' own family reacts to these exclusive words, trying to get him out of this situation before he buries himself any deeper in what he's saying. And and I wish we had time to cover it, uh, but we don't, because the core of this whole thing, these verses, 22 through 32, is all about who are you deciding that Jesus is. You're either for me or you're against me. He says, so which side of the line are you going to land on? Because Jesus is the one who, he's forcing a decision. So the question then we ask ourselves is, is fairly easy and fairly plain. Um, what's your decision? What's your decision about Jesus, what are you going to do with him? Because there comes a time when you can no longer be neutral about Jesus. I know our culture today tells us you can choose when you want to choose, and you can decide when you want to decide, and this is you know, a thing that doesn't really have any bearing on the world right now. It's a spiritual thing. If you've got a problem or you've got a need, whatever, maybe go try to find an answer, but you've got plenty of time to figure it out. Unless, for some reason, you know your days are numbered, We tend to think, well, we can deal with spiritual things, you know, some other time. But Jesus doesn't give us that freedom. He says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. And you can't be neutral. You have to decide. So what's your decision? For some of us today, it might be the first time we've ever really encountered the, the claims of Jesus. You might be hearing this for the first time or in church this morning or listening to this recording and really having no idea why you're here or why you're listening, but this is the first time that you've begun to wonder if Jesus really is who he says he is, really the one who offers forgiveness and release from the guilt and the shame of every way we've hurt others and every way we've been hurt by others. Maybe you've been reading these stories about Jesus and you're finding yourself drawn towards God and you're not really sure why and not really sure you believe any of this stuff, but something about Jesus, his compassion or his kindness or the way he gets angry at those who are hard-hearted and uncaring, something about Jesus is drawing you in. And if that is you, then Jesus is, well, forcing you to make a decision. Is he the son of God or is he not? Is he the one who can redeem you and release you and free you from sin or is he not? 
That's the decision. Now, for many of us, though, uh, I think probably most of us in the room, the decision that we're being called to make is a little bit different. Our decision probably has something more to do with we need to decide if Jesus is bigger than what we've decided he is or not. Because I, I know for, for most of us, because this is where I always find myself, uh, it, it's way too easy to simply think of Jesus as the answer to some spiritual problem that I have or the, the provision for some spiritual need that I have. And we, so we decide that, yeah, he, he's the son of God. And if, if believing he's the son of God and that he forgives us will meet my spiritual need or release me from a sense of guilt or a sense of shame, then yes, I will believe that if that's what it takes to, to be you know, released from this or, or, or meet this need. And, and so we, we come to Jesus and we're like, all right, you know, he's, he's releasing us from sin now and he's promised us eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth. But between now and when eternity comes, uh, Jesus mostly wants me to be happy, Right? It should be nice to people, not too judgmental, work hard, maybe tell, pe- tell a few people about Jesus along the way, and like, hey, you too can have you know, your needs met, your problems fixed. But in the meantime, living for Jesus or having faith means trusting that God will take care of all of the things in my life that are making me uncomfortable or unhappy. I think most of us, myself included, when we're faced with the Jesus who forces us to make a decision, are, are forced to decide, are we with Jesus or cheering him along from the sidelines? See, Jesus says, right, neutrality is not an option. Whoever is not with me is against me. And when he says that, he doesn't have room for the kind of soft neutrality that says, yeah, Jesus, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And hey, when I'm about to die, it'd be great if if you were with me. But in the meantime, just, you know, let me do my own thing. To be with Jesus is to make Jesus the, the biggest part of your life. Bigger than all of the other whatevers we go after uh, to define who we are and what we're trying to accomplish in this world. He's got to be bigger than our families, bigger than our careers, bigger than our grades, bigger than our relationships, bigger than our cultural backgrounds, bigger than our patriotism, bigger than anything else we pursue. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pursue those things grades and families and relationships and love of country or any of those things. It just means all of those things are subordinate to, they're subservient to Jesus. To be with him is for him to be the the biggest, the largest, the most important part of our lives because we can't just relegate him to a spiritual decision we made at some point in the past and an occasional motivational pep talk with some nice music on a Sunday morning. To follow Jesus is to transform every part of our lives, not just spiritual, but religious and political and social and on and on and on. So if you're already a follower of Jesus, the the decision he's forcing us to make is, well, am I really with him? Or just, you know, kind of with him? Because Jesus is the one who forces a decision. Now, Lastly, before we close, I do want to say just one thing about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
that Jesus warns us about here. It's not really the point of the passage, so I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, But the basic rule of thumb for this whole concern, like what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin? Have I accidentally committed it in the past? How would I know? The, The basic rule of thumb is if you're worried, you have nothing to worry about. Okay, if you're concerned about this, your concerns are unfounded. Jesus is talking about people who see the obvious work of God and are like, that's, that's not God, that can't be God, I don't want it to be God, it's got to be something else. This is very different from a, a momentary experience of doubt, even doubt that lasts a season. It's different from an experience of loss or grief that seems to get in the way of you seeing God's goodness. This is different from even embracing kind of a sinful attitude for a period. Right, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this is the Pharisees and their settled opposition to Jesus. This is not Peter and that momentary fear before repenting and coming back to Christ. See, the guys in this story who need to hear the warning are not in any way actually concerned about hearing the warning. That's how you know. So don't get too worried about it. If you're concerned, you have nothing to be concerned about. Because the, the central point of this passage isn't about, you know, what is demon oppression and how does all that work? Or what's the sin against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And how do I know if I've, if I've done that or not? The central point of this is whoever is not with me is against me. What's your decision? Who do you think this guy is? Beyond simply being the one that forces you to make a decision, who is he? Now, in a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. I'll pray, and after I pray, the uh, communion servers will come up and, and deliver, uh, you know, pass the trays with the elements and all of that. And, and as we move into this time of communion, this fellowship feast in the presence of God and in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the powering of the, the Spirit, uh, this meal is itself a remembrance that forces us to make a decision. When the bread and, and the cup are passed in front of you, you have to decide, am I, am I going to take it? or not. Those are the only two choices, unless you leave under cover of prayer. You're being forced to make a decision. It's like you're in a place where you're like, I was going along just fine until this showed up, and now I have to choose one or the other. The same is true with Jesus. You're either for him or against him. You're either with him, bound through faith to him, faith in who he is and what he's done, or you're against him. Perhaps not yet convinced, perhaps not yet submitted, but against him nonetheless. So what will you decide? I'll remind you as the communion servers come with the trays, hold onto the elements, and we will all partake of them together. Father, you have given us in this moment and in this passage a... a real crisis point where a decision is necessary. Where to remain neutral is to remain against. Father, we know that you are not pressuring us or forcing us into a corner out of power, trying to overwhelm us and force us to make 
the right decision or force us to, to come to you. Uh, but Father, out of your love for us, you are drawing us closer and closer to you. Father, may we be overwhelmed by the love that you have shown to us in the face of your son, our savior who died in our place and whose sacrifice we remember in this meal. And may our hearts be enlivened and the eyes of our hearts be opened by the indwelling of your spirit within us who testifies to us that this one is the son and the one who saves us. Father, for those who are here or who are listening uh, who do not know you and do not have a relationship with you through your son, I pray that even in these moments that the Holy Spirit would move in their hearts, that their eyes would be open to see your goodness to us, that in the face of Jesus, they would see the one who is gentle and humble and approachable, and yet the one who is absolutely firm, that we're either with him or against him. And Father, may you draw many to yourself. And now as we enter into this time of communion, may this bread and this cup strengthen us spiritually in our inner hearts that we may serve you. In Jesus' name we pray.